Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 3, Colossians 3, a series called Fruit of the Christ-Dependent Church. Fruit of the Christ-Dependent Church. Some of you are probably familiar with The Onion, the satirical website. It had this following fictitious story titled, Man on Cusp of Having Fun Suddenly Remembers Every Single One of His Responsibilities. That was the title. The story reads this. Marshall Platt, 34, came tantalizingly close to kicking back and having a good time while attending a friend's barbecue last night before remembering each and every one of his professional and personal obligations, backyard sources confirmed. While he chatted with friends over a relaxed outdoor meal, Platt was reportedly seconds away from letting go and enjoying himself when he suddenly... Uh, was crushed by the full weight of work emails that still needed to be dealt with, an upcoming wedding he had yet to buy airfare for because of an unresolved issue with his Southwest Rapid Rewards account and phone calls that needed to be returned. Platt, who reportedly sunk into a distracted haze after coming to the razor's edge of experiencing genuine joy, fully intended to go through the motions of talking with friends and appearing to have a good time, all while he mentally shopped for a birthday present for his mother and made a silent note to call his bank about a mysterious reoccurring $19 monthly fee that he had recently discovered on his credit card statement. Everything's fine, said the tense, mentally absent man whose girlfriend asked him what was wrong after his, after his near giddy buzz vanished and he remembered that he hadn't called his aunt yet to check up on her after her surgery. I'm having fun, he said. According to sources, Platt tried to put his responsibility-laden thoughts out of his mind and loosen up, but suddenly remembered a magazine subscription that needed to be renewed by Friday, a medical bill he thought might now be overdue, and the fact that he needed to do laundry by tonight or he'd run out of clean socks and underwear. I think we can all relate to that, especially us type A's, right? The list never ends, and you don't have any peace. Marshall Platt was unable to experience joy because all he recounted was all the things that he had to do. No Christian I would submit to you can experience joy unless they know what Christ has already done. This is how Paul, I think, approaches this topic of, again, distinguishing between a legalistic man-centered religion that these Judaizers were practicing and a Christ-dependent church. And we're looking at these distinguishing marks. And I've, I've taken this section out from the rest of our study and separated it because these are the fruits of a, of a church, of a Christ-dependent church. So let's stand as we take a look at our passage. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our first virtue of a Christ-dependent church is the peace of Christ will guide us into harmony with God and others. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. We are to let peace do its work. Notice I didn't say we are to go get peace. We are to make peace. 
Peace is not something that you can contrive. It's not something that you can do on your own. Not this kind of peace. It is a benefit that we enjoy because we are in Christ. Notice, in fact, Paul calls it the peace of Christ. It's not a peace we earn. It's not a peace we make. It's a peace from Christ that is given to us. In fact, before he died, Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, he said this, Peace I leave with you, my peace, unlike any other, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. This peace of Christ is unique. It is not like any other peace in humankind. Now, it's not just the absence of conflict, you know, peace versus war. This peace is far deeper, permanent, effective than any other kind of peace. Why is that? Because the work of Christ is the basis of our peace. I'm going to read you an extended passage from Ephesians 2 that explains this. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and uh, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both now speak of now Jew and Gentile. So now we have peace with God and now we have peace in the community. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul says, through Christ, we now have access with God. In verse 18, we were once at war in hostility with God, but now Christ dying for our sins has made the way for us to be reconciled to God, so we have peace with God. But notice, he has brought us together with one another. We are now fellow citizens, all of us, fellow citizens who are in the body of Christ, fellow citizens, saints, members of God's household, a holy temple, joined together with one another. This is not because we are all in the same building. It is not because we are Baptist or AG or Presbyterian or Methodist. It's not because we all agree on eternal security or eschatology. It is all because we are all Republicans. (laughs) I hope you know I was kidding. We are not, for which I am glad. I mean all Republicans. We have many different political stripes. But you get the point. It's because of Christ. Christ is what 
melds our hearts together. I mean, what's the big deal anyway, really, about what unity is based on? Is it really that big? We're in the same building. We, you know, just be kind and get along with one another. No, 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 no. We are talking about the reality of a spiritual fellowship or unity together. Just like in a marriage, without the spiritual component, you are not working on all pistons. Oh, you could have a great physical relationship. You might have been friends since high school, but without that spiritual component that unites your souls together, I contend that a marriage cannot be truly intimate as it was intended. These Judaizers who come along as false teachers said that peace can only come by keeping regulations and festivals and some kind of ascetic lifestyle Follow their rules. And Paul comes along and says, no, the true arbiter of peace is not these guys, it's Christ. Not some self-appointed religionist. Listen, peace is the relationship of our mind and our heart toward the objective fact of Christ's work on the cross. Peace is not some Jedi mind trick. It's not meditating to, you know, erase or forget about all the things, all the problems, all the issues that we have with one another. No, we who enjoy peace are the recipients of Christ's work now, and we can enjoy the benefit of his forgiveness. We come together on an even playing field. We are reconciled to God the same way. We enjoy a unity the same way. The false teachers had stirred the pot with the Colossians. Hey, you need to do this. You need to believe this to get tight with God. And in all that, they talked about Christ. Every false teacher does. They throw Christ in there. You know, it sounds good. It tickles the ear. But truly, Christ was not the focus. My dear friends, let us not allow any movement or thought or legalism or ritualism steal our peace. And it only happens because we allow it to happen. It only happens because we allow others to deposit some way to veer off from Christ and attempts to... to Get our focus off of Christ come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. But ultimately, we're the ones responsible for this. It could be we lose our peace by maybe refusing to forgive somebody. Or maybe somebody even refuses to forgive us. That can be even tougher. Or maybe you are seeking the approval of another person. That can steal your peace. Maybe you feel like you don't measure up with a group of friends or with a person. That can steal your peace. Or peace eludes us when we think that, you know, I have to follow these rules, read this book, do these steps, do this program, memorize this shtick. And then there there becomes this kind of moral and spiritual confusion, frustration, and peace eludes us. And so Paul, again, is contrasting 
what these Judaizers were offering in this confusion, veering away from Christ, and what is offered in Christ himself. Not only is Christ the basis of the peace, but Christ is the vehicle to enjoy our daily peace. He's the, 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 it's his person and promises that deliver daily peace. Listen, can we not have peace in the midst of a trial? In the midst when evil is done to us, something difficult happens. I was talking to an individual from our own church this week. Found cancer behind their eye. And as I talked to the individual, how you feeling about this? Man, I, I know God has got me. I know where I'm going. I don't have any fear. It's like, wow, no, that's kind of supernatural. The peace of God. It's the peace of God. Can God not convey his love, communicate to us in our darkest hour? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Talked to a woman this week. Husband had cheated on her. What can, what can I do? She learned to look to Christ. Said, you know what? I'm going to make it. I'm going to be all right. I got peace. Terrible circumstances. But God is in the business of intervening in this messy world. And by the power of Christ in us, communicates to, in our mind and heart, I am here, you're going to be all right. Can God go with us through the valley, the shadow of death? Absolutely. Let us not allow anyone to steal our confidence, to steal our trust in God to sustain us. Why do we have this confidence? It's not because of the strength of our will. It's not because, boy, you know, I'm strong. and I'm No, no, no. It's because in Christ, the more I look to him, just keep my eyes affixed to him, there's confidence, there's strength. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Can we not have the fullest confidence in God because of the testimony of Christ? This is not some empty hope. It's Christ who came to earth, the the dust, the the air, the material world Christ came to. I can verify that. It's something I can put my trust in. I can be assured of that just as much as Lincoln was the 16th president. Christ came to earth 2,000 years ago. Historians confirm the fact. He was on a cross. He died. He was buried. He rose the third day. And upon that, I have my confidence. And I know that I am reconciled to God no matter what happens. Can we not trust God because of the testimony of Christ? Yes. Does this mean that people who trust God will not have great trials? No. But it does mean that in the midst of this, there he is, and he can sustain us. Paul says the peace of Christ 
check this out, is to rule in our hearts. The idea is that the peace of Christ is like our umpire. The baseball playoffs have started. They've already had different replays now of close calls at first or second or third base and what they're trying to determine. Did the guy make it to the bag before the ball got there? They're trying to give the umpire information so that he can make the right call. In this sense, God says the peace of Christ is like your umpire to make a decision, to decide which way to turn. Now, this doesn't mean that this is purely subjective just based on our feelings. Feelings alone are different than the peace of God. It doesn't mean that because we agree with something, because we want to do something, because we are passionate about something, that that equates into the peace of God. These are different things. I've often heard people say, I have a peace about this. As they leap headlong into something that clearly Scripture forbids. Well, whatever you're feeling, I can guarantee you it is not the peace of Christ at that moment. When the peace of Christ rules our hearts, it is informed by the word of Christ and his example. And we see this later in the passage where it talks about the word of Christ richly dwelling within you. We'll get into more on that next week. Do you really think that Christ is going to grant us peace when we are doing something that he forbids? Of course not. You may have justified in your head taking money from your employer. You may have reasoned your way into bed with somebody who is not your spouse. You may refuse to forgive someone because indulging that grievance gives you a twisted pleasure. But you can be sure it is not the peace of Christ that is experienced in those situations. Our feelings can deceive us, but the peace of Christ can be a valuable guide. We have this added word from Romans 14, 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. I like that. That, that there, is a, there is a positive, good, healthy contribution that I am making to the body of Christ because of this action. God confirms that with peace. Perhaps you're in conflict with another person and your conscience is telling you, you need to make an attempt for reconciliation before I grant you peace. Maybe you have a decision to to move and, and you're considering, I think I need to prefer my family here and you know then that peace is realized. Maybe you're faced with a financial decision. You want the peace of Christ, but you know that means that you have to head towards contentment and good stewardship. We have to realize that the the, the peace of Christ is unique in its truth and direction. It, it, It aligns, the peace of Christ aligns our subjective feelings with God's revealed truth. And an overlooked aspect of this is how it is expressed in community. Our passage says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Now certainly, 
We have the, the, the personal peace that we have with God through Christ, but I believe that Paul is saying here that the peace of Christ works in harmony with the body of Christ. It contributes to the health and well-being. It is peaceable. That means that there's probably going to be sacrifices, things I have to give up, agendas I have to let off the hook. I have to contribute to the body of Christ to find this peace. Keep in mind, again, the work of the false teachers here posed a threat to this kind of harmony that was to be enjoyed in the Colossian assembly. Is there a strained relationship with somebody in the body? The peace of Christ demands that you deal with your brother and sister in humility and patience and love. Has someone wronged you or slighted you? The peace of Christ demands you not seek vengeance, that you not freeze them out, you not give them the silent treatment. Rather, you return kindness. Has a ministry prospered where you labored and someone else is now enjoying the fruit? The peace of Christ demands that you encourage and cheer these people on. Listen, this, this passage says we're called to something. Do you notice that? We are called to something. You, you're not called to an agenda. All right? You're not called to nurse and foster a wound. You're not called to freeze others out when you didn't get what you wanted. You're not called to avoid others. You are called to peace in one body. That's a fact. That is objective. So are we aligning our actions with that? It's interesting that the last soldier in World War I was an American. 23-year-old Henry Gunther, a private with the American Expeditionary Force in France. He was killed at 10.59 a.m. November 11, 1918, one minute before the armistice, the agreement of ceasefire that went into effect. See, the Germans were aware that the war was over, but Gunther's squad, part of the 79th Infantry Division, encountered a group of Germans with machine guns along a road in France, and against the order of his sergeant, Gunther charged the guns with his bayonet, and even the Germans were waving at him to stop, stop. But he kept charging. They had no choice but to shoot him. Killed him. And his divisional record says this. Almost as he fell, the gunfire died away and an appalling silence prevailed. Even when peace is declared, some continue to fight. And sadly, some people even within the body of Christ are still at war. Their hearts are in conflict, and they are going to bring other people into that. Let us not needlessly pick up a skirmish. It's as if Paul is saying, lay down your arms. Enjoy the victory and the peace that Christ has secured for you. Another fruit of our dependence upon Christ is not only this peace, but we exhibit thankfulness. We exhibit thankfulness. Now, we could generally say that a lack of peace results from dissatisfaction. 
dissatisfaction with people, we're disappointed, dissatisfaction with circumstances. And we've already established that having peace, we're looking to Christ, right? So there's no room for uh, bitterness or ill will. And I would also submit to you that gratitude, it contributes to what we might call our spiritual tranquility. Whereas grumbling, it has a way of creating an, an inner agitation. It's interesting that a team of researchers from three different universities gathered together and did an interesting uh, study on this, and they discovered a consequence to gratitude. Participants in the study were told that they could receive, I don't know why they decided on these amounts, but they did, they could receive $54 now or $80 in three days, or in 30 days, excuse me, in 30 days. Uh, They were separated into three different groups. Uh, The two groups were told to write down things that made them happy or things that they were grateful about in their life that had taken place. And the other group was just left alone to whatever feelings they had as they entered into the study. It said that those who were the unhappiest were those who were the least grateful, and they wanted their $54 now. The vast majority of those who were grateful were willing to wait for the $80. Isn't that an odd thing? Well, one of the researchers suggested this, that this displaying gratitude opens up tremendous possibilities for reducing a wide range of societal ills from impulse buying and insufficient saving. So I'm here to tell you, being thankful saves you money, all right? Hey, there you go. Two psychologists, Robert Emmons and Dr. Michael E. McCullough, were written about in the Harvard Mental Health Letter, and they uh, also did research on gratitude. In one study, they asked participants to write a few sentences each week focusing on particular topics. One group wrote about things they were grateful for that had occurred during the week. A second group about daily irritations or things that had displeased them. And again, same kind of thing found. After 10 weeks, those who wrote about gratitude were more optimistic, felt better about their lives. They also exercised more, it said, had fewer visits to physicians instead of focusing on sources of aggravation. All of this, you know what this tells me? Scientists are finally now catching up with what the Bible has said for over 2,000 years. (laughs) Thankfulness has its payoffs. And here's one other thing. We choose our attitude. We are responsible to experience gratefulness. We are responsible to operate in peace. It's a choice we make. Came upon an interesting letter. I've actually had this letter in my file for quite a while. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you or not. This was actually given to me by a woman who had divorced her husband, but they came back together. And she said this changed her life greatly. And it's written by a lady by the name of Becky Zerby. It's called The List That Saved My Marriage. It's extended, but I think it's worth the, uh, worth the read. So hang on and uh, let this sink in. The day had come. I'd lasted as long as I could in my marriage. 
Once my husband Bill left for work, I packed a bag for myself and our 14-month-old son and left our home. It was the only year in our married life that we lived in the same town as my parents. Obviously, the convenience of being able to run to mom and dad made my decision to leave Bill easier. With a tear-stained, angry face, I walked into mom's kitchen. She held the baby while I sobbed my declaration of independence. A washcloth and a cup of coffee later, mom told me she and dad would help me. I was comforted to know they would be there for me. But before you leave Bill, she said, I have one task for you to complete. Mom put down my sleeping son, took a piece of paper and pen, and drew a vertical line down the middle of the page. She told me to list in the left column all the things Bill did that made him impossible to live with. As I looked at the dividing line, I thought she'd then tell me to list all his good qualities on the right side. I was determined to have a longer list of bad qualities on the left. This is going to be easy, I thought. My pen started immediately to scribble down the left column. Bill never picked his clothes off the floor. He never told me when he was going outside. He slept in church. He had embarrassing, nasty habits, such as blowing his nose or belching at the dinner table. He never bought me nice presents. He refused to match his clothes. He was tight with money. He wouldn't help with his housework. He didn't talk with me. The list went on and on until I filled the page. I certainly had more than enough evidence to prove that no woman would be able to live with this man. Smugly, I said, now I guess you're going to ask me to list all Bill's good qualities on the right side. No, she said, I already know Bill's good qualities. And said, for each item on the left side, I want you to write how you respond. What do you do? Uh, This was even tougher than listing his good qualities. I'd been thinking about Bill's few good qualities I could list. I hadn't considered my uh, thinking about myself. I knew mom wasn't going to let me uh, get by without completing her assignment, so I had to start writing. I'd pout cry, get angry. I'd be embarrassed to be with him. I'd act like a martyr. I'd wish I'd married someone else. I'd give him the silent treatment. I'd feel I was too good for him. The list seemed endless. When I reached the bottom of the page, mom picked up the paper and went to the drawer. She took scissors and cut the paper down the vertical line. Taking the left column, she wadded it in her hand and tossed it into the trash. Then she handed me the right column. Becky, she said, take this list back to your house. Spend today reflecting on these things in your life. Pray about them. I'll keep the baby until this afternoon. If you sincerely do what I ask and still want to leave Bill, Dad and I will do all we can to assist you. Facing facts. Leaving my luggage and son, I drove back to my house, and when I sat on my couch with a piece of paper, I couldn't believe what I was facing. Without the balancing catalog of Bill's annoying habits, the list looked horrifying. I saw a record of petty behavior, shameful practices, and destructive responses. I spent the next several hours asking God for forgiveness. I requested strength, guidance, and wisdom in the changes I needed to make. As I continued to pray, I realized how ridiculously I'd behaved. I could barely remember the transgressions I'd written for Bill. How absurd could I be? There was nothing immoral or horrible on that list. I'd honestly been blessed with a good man, not a perfect one, but a good one. I thought back five years, I'd made a vow to Bill. I would love and honor him in sickness and health. I'd be with him for better or for worse. I said these words in the presence of God, my family, and friends. Yet this morning, 
I've been ready to leave him for trivial annoyances. I jumped back into the car and drove to my parents' house. I marveled at how different I felt from when I'd first made the trip to see mom. I now felt peace, relief, and gratitude. And when I picked up my son, I was dismayed at by how willing I'd been to make such a drastic change in my life. My pettiness almost cost him the opportunity to be exposed daily to a wonderful father. Quickly, I thanked my mother, flew out the door to return home. By the time Bill returned from work, I was unpacked and waiting. A new outlook. I'd love to say that Bill changed. He didn't. He still did all those things that embarrassed me and annoyed me and made me want to explode. The difference came in me. From that day forward, I had to be responsible not only for my actions in our marriage, but also for my reactions. I think back to one of the items, Bill slept in church. The minute he began to doze always marked the end of my worship time. That's the real reason I'm leading, reading this letter. For all of you that are sleeping, I see you. So often I thought he was rudely uninterested in the message. And get this, and my dad was the preacher. (laughs) It didn't matter that Bill was unable to stay awake any time he sat for a longer period. The entire time he spent nodding, I spent fuming. I'd squirm in the pew, feeling humiliated. I'd wonder why I ever married the man. I knew he didn't deserve a wife as godly as I was. Mm. Yet now I could see myself as truly as I was. My pride was hampering a valuable portion of my life, my worship. This problem wasn't Bill's, it was mine. When Bill fell asleep in church, I began to bathe that time in gratitude and prayer. I took my eyes off Bill and myself and looked to God. Instead of leaving the services in anger, I left in joy. It wasn't long before Bill noticed a difference. He remarked at lunch one Sunday, you seem to be enjoying the services more lately. I was beginning to think you didn't like the preacher. My immediate instinct was to explain how he'd ruined so many services for me, but instead, I accepted his statement without defense. Remaking the list. There have been many times through the years I've had to remake the list. I've continued to ask God to forgive my pathetic reactions and give me his wisdom in dealing with my marriage. Fifteen years later, at the age of 49, Bill was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. He had to quit his teaching job, leaving me to support our family, which has led to trying days and nights of worry. Watching him fight to maintain abilities to function daily has been inspiring to my sons as well as to me. We've had to depend on our faith that God is in control, especially when we feel so out of control. We search the Bible for answers to questions we struggle to understand. We spend hours with every emotion from anger to grief. We've asked why. We've claimed God's peace that passes all understanding. Regrettably, many days I've run short on patience, even though I know Bill can't prevent himself from doing things that try my nerves. I realize my responsibility is is to respond with the love God would have me show. I cry to God to love through me because I know I'm not capable of loving Bill as God is capable of loving him. Many times I've thanked God for a mother who was a spiritual mentor. Though she must have been tempted, she didn't preach to me or offer her opinion on my behavior. She guided me in discovering a truth that saved a most treasured possession, my marriage. If I hadn't learned to respond as a Christian wife to Bill's small problems, I wouldn't be able to respond appropriately to his larger ones now. 
my son came home one day and asked, Mom, what are we going to do when Dad doesn't remember us? My reply was, we'll remember him. We'll remember the husband and father he was. We'll remember him for all the things he, he's taught us and the wonderful ways he's loved us. After my son left the room, I chuckled. I was thinking of all the things I'd remember about this man who loved his family and his God. Many of those enduring memories are those same annoying little habits that made their way into a list of bad qualities so many years ago. Let's pray.